Hi, I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokin. And this is Famous Lost Words. We have the keys to one of the most extensive interview archives in music history. Now, these are interviews that, for the most part, have aired only once, and some parts have never been heard at all. Well, you know this, Christopher. Sometimes you record these interviews, and you only have a short time to air a couple of minutes of them, sometimes just a, a clip, a soundbite. Right. And, and sometimes a great conversation, which is what you and I hope for when we interview someone. The conversational aspect of it, or the memorable quote, they, those things get missed. And uh, that's where we come in. So sometimes we'll play you highlights from superstar interviews, and sometimes it's people that are long-forgotten one-hit wonders. So what's on tap for today? Well, we've got an incredible interview that you did with the Bee Gees. What year was that, Christopher? 1989. Okay, and we've also got an early career interview with John Mellencamp. Of course, back then he was known as Johnny Cougar. (laughs) Uh, Lots of good stuff here. Lots of John Cougar, typical Johnny Cougar attitude. Excellent. And this week on When Rock Stars Attack, we hear from Carly Simon and Cher. But not together. They're not attacking each other. They're not together. <laughs> oh, good. You won't believe what some people said to them and what happened after that. Boy, that's a clickbait little tease there, isn't it? And this week, we will begin a new feature, which we will put at the end of every episode. It's called The Wisdom of Dave. Mm. We'll explain who Dave is, and we will hear his weird and wild wisdom at the very end of the show. I can't wait. Okay, don't forget, you can get caught up with every previous episode of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app. Okay, let's get started with the Bee Gees. All right, so you're going back to 1989. Tell us the story, Uncle Christopher. (laughs) Well, I had a fantastic interview with the Bee Gees. It was in New York City on the eve of the North American release of the album One in 1989, which had already become a hit in Europe, by the Mm -hmm. way. So while Barry was obviously the leader of this band of brothers, the camaraderie among Barry, Robin, and Maurice was wonderful. And this is a group that were justifiably suspicious of the press, me included, but they were in great spirits. We covered a host of topics, including favorite songs, how they got back together after breaking up, and their take on the press. But first of all, I asked them about their distinctive harmonies. Well, yeah. well where there are brothers involved, like the Beach Boys, um, and where there's a, there's a sonic uh, resemblance between the voices that comes from birth. Yeah, like the, well, even like the Beatles, who all came from the same area. Yeah. They all had that nasal... Just, they weren't related, but no, they, but they had the same nasal accent. Yeah. Toning. The same nasal yeah. the way they speak, which is more like that, you know, sort of... It's all bottom uh, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the singing becomes like that, too. So and, when um, they sing together, they sound like a team, like brothers, like Mills come, Brothers. We and, come from 30 miles from where the Beatles come from. And um, so the accent's a bit more like we speak. It's a bit more open. It's not quite as nasally. It's as English, yeah. And uh, so there was, that's why the Hollies have, have a, a sort of, not a close sound to where we are, but the same type of thing, the same kind of blending harmonies in Manchester sort yeah, of they had that sound. sound. Yeah. So I think it comes from that mm. instinctively. No, I have to say instinctively it comes from the three of us being brothers. Oh, for sure. And those harmonies were so unique. And when they first sang those, I understand when they first sang those together, it just happened automatically. They, they all knew where to go in a harmony. You know, one's singing the melody and one's high harmony, one's middle harmony. And uh, it's magical. It really is. And, you know, even those songs like Jive Talk and Night Fever and Stayin' Alive are classics. They were at the time dismissed by critics as a disco sellout by the band. Can you believe that? Uh, there was in the media, there was a, yeah. a certain amount of resistance, was not, yeah. not to the public, because the public, the public never knew the record was out. So yeah. we still have, you know, a lot of people have asked, you know, when are you bring another record out? They just don't know that the record was out, even though it was a huge yeah. success in the rest of the world. It was just at that time, I think the media had a bit of an image thing with us, and it yeah. seems to have crumbled down a lot yeah. now. I think the media but, got uh, the illusion that, that, that Saturday Night Fever 
mm. uh, that we were a disco group because of Saturday Night Fever, and it's mm. um, it's sort of um, it's really an apparition. It's an illusion. It's not. Uh, we're a group that have, that had many many platinum records before Saturday Night Fever, and uh, we're going to go on endeavour to make more. We're not really going to concentrate on on being something that the industry seems to think we are, and it's not true. When nobody should suffer from success. You know. well, you can't At the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction in 1997, Barry Gibb called the Bee Gees an enigma with a stigma. Oh, perfect. And he said that they had suffered. And that, I mean, that's a strong word. He says, nobody should suffer from success, the quote we just heard. Yes. Which, I mean, that could be an epitaph for so many artists yes. who've, you know, carried that weight of expectation. It could be like the one-hit wonders that you mentioned. Yep. It could be the child stars, the former top acts struggling to get back to the peak. Um, luckily, later in the interview, we turn to happier topics, <laughs> in particular, some of their favorite songs. One of the highlights for me would have to be To Love Somebody, uh, because it was originally written for Otis Redding about two months before he died. And um, it was a, a request for us to write a song for Otis Redding, so he really never got to hear the song. I mean, Massachusetts has a great memory for me because it was the first mm. number one we ever had. There was Nights on Broadway, which I liked, um, the, because the main course was our transition album. Mm. Mm. And uh, we called <coughs> it with Arif Mardin at that particular time, which got us over that transition period. And uh, yeah, there's, there's, that, that was hard, the main course album, and, and this album now, the new one. Yeah. Mm. Nights on Broadway is such a challenging song musically too. Mm. I, I played in a band and we tried to sing that song. Yeah, <laughs> it's a bitch, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> we failed no. dismally. <laughs> oh, it's hell. You have to hear us do it. I mean, we do it on stage too. It is quite quite a number to sing. Yeah. Every, every time we finish Nights on Broadway, we all look at each other and go. <gasps> <laughs> oh, I bet those those notes are so hard to hit. I have to tell you something. Yeah. That's the very first song I ever bought. As a kid, Nights I was on Broadway. Thirteen years old, Nights on Broadway. So ah. it has it has a very dear place in my heart, and that was such a great song. But I cannot imagine. But it didn't occur to me that a band that writes the song, performs it, performs it live at the end of it, are just going. Whew, yeah. I can't believe we made it through that. Who still find it that tough? That's to sing. right. Yeah. And you guys, uh, and your you and your band had a hell of a time well, with it. Well, we tried and we <laughs> failed basically. <laughs> All right, I'm else? sure we were not the first. Yeah, so for sure. That was a really fun interview. Yeah, they were, they sure. were having a good time, as yeah. you can tell. Now, this is a group that, even with their success over you know maybe four decades as as uh, you know artists, mm -hmm. they still had time to write hits for other people, like Barbara Streisand. I mean, they had the A-list artists coming to them. One of the biggest hits they wrote was for Dolly Parton and Kenny Rogers. He asked us to come up with a suggestion. He wanted to do a duet with somebody, and he said, "If I do a duet with one of these songs, can you guys come up with any thoughts as to who?" Well, we knew that he'd worked with Dolly, but we knew that he'd never done a duet with her. And he'd done a duet with a lot of <coughs> other people, so we made that suggestion to um, Kenny's yeah, manager. Ken Craig, yeah. yeah. And I, eventually that's what happened. I don't know how they reacted to it at first, but eventually that's what happened. And Dolly came in and she did the vocal. And mm. what we had to do was obviously change key for her. So we, we had to change key in the middle of the song into another key for her to do that. And how we do that, how we find out, make that work, what we do is we do one verse in Kenny's key and then we do another verse with my falsetto because my falsetto is in a woman's key and if we do it about right we figured out the woman's key pretty easily and it works it's a, that's one of the reasons where we've been able to write for women successfully because using the, the falsetto voice uh, we're in a woman's key so it's much easier mm. for us to see that could that have just as easily been a BG song? yeah we yeah, the original version is yeah, yeah, if we'd have done Islands in the Stream we would have done it more 
more, more R&B. Marvin yeah. Gaye type. In fact, it was, wasn't written for Kenny in the first place, it was written yeah. for Diana Ross. That's right, yeah. And it, if you imagine that song as an R&B type song, it works much better than country song. In fact, the original yeah. demo was R&B. Oh, yeah. That we did. It's like, it's sort yeah. of more R&B feel. Okay, wow. They wrote Islands in the Stream for Diana Ross. Mm-hmm. That is crazy. Now... It's funny that they tell the story about Islands in the Stream the way they did because I've heard it. I read Kenny's autobiography, and he said, if I'm not mistaken, that he had never met Dolly before that recording session. They called her up, and she said, sure, I'll sing with Kenny, but they did not know each other. So, so wow. yeah, I don't know which part is true. I don't know what's happening. I don't know if uh, Somebody's memory is faulty. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> okay. right. Oh, I have to tell you my Bee Gees story. Oh. You have a Bee Gees story. I think I have a better BG story. Mm. Okay. Uh, the year is 2000. We find out that we have a 90 minute live on air interview with the Bee Gees from their home studio in Miami. Wow. So we fly down. When I say we, it's myself and Marilyn Dennis. Marilyn is doing the interview. I'm producing and, you know, co writing some of the questions and, you know, formatting the show. And we're flying down, and I, I lean over and I, tap Marilyn on the shoulder sitting just ahead of me and I just said this is a dream come true for me like in all my life to be flying down to Miami just to interview the Bee Gees live on the air is a dream come true so we 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 get there we go to their home studio they give us a tour all three guys give us a tour of the studio and there's one wall completely dedicated to Andy their younger brother oh. and and you could tell this was what this was probably 12 years after he had died and they were still feeling that loss, right? Of course. There, you know, it was a little shrine to him. And so that was really moving. And the brothers themselves were in great spirits. They were they were having so much fun. Morris would just sit in the back, and they were all around, they all had their own mic. So when I say sit in the back, he'd lean back in his chair, and he would just fire off these one-liners throughout. <laughs> and Barry, of course, is the pro who just wants to make sure that everybody's getting things done and all that mm-hmm. and Barry uh, Robin is a little bit more no, no nonsense but he was terrific and he gave some great interviews and every once in a while they would all laugh together and joke around and break into this Monty Python-esque kind of comedy routine <laughs> oh, man. and it was so wonderful and it was just uh, maybe the, among the top three highlights of my career being part of that wow. and it was it was live on the air for an hour and a half great stuff from them great memories and they were phenomenal to be with and it was their i think it was their last full album uh, i think it was called this is where we came in um and that was from right around 2000 2001 it was uh, it was wow. a great memory yeah. and did, did they laugh in three-part harmony yeah. they laughed in three-part <laughs> harmony. And, and, and are we going to get to hear that at some point well that's the plan We'll Stay see. tuned. All right. Uh, coming up next, oh, we've got a good one. This is uh, early, an, an early career interview with Johnny Cougar Mellencamp. Mm-hmm. Stay tuned. Famous Lost Words is brought to you by Alarm Force. Managing your home is a lot of work, but securing it doesn't have to be. Let the professionals at Alarm Force take home security off your to-do list. With Alarm Force, you can rely on professional installation, dependable products, and industry-leading customer service. They provide protection for burglary, fire, and flood with a suite of smart home products like door locks, lighting, and thermostat, all controlled from anywhere in the world with the Alarm Force mobile app. No charge for installation with packages starting from only $29.99. Call 1-800-267-2001 or learn more at alarmforce.com. This is Famous Lost Words, and I'm Christopher Ward. And I'm Tom Jokic. Okay, let's keep going here. 
This time around, it's John Cougar, John Cougar Mellencamp, or in the early days, just Johnny Cougar. (laughs) John Cougar seemed to get through the 80s kind of on his own terms. And, you know, he made some pretty memorable music. And I think the longer he kept going, like by the time Lonesome Jubilee came out in 1987, he was really hitting his stride and hitting his sound. Now, within a couple years, I think he was pretty upset about being a rock star, right? Remember that song, Pop? pop singer pop song oh yeah and i that, tried to forget it oh but, i know and yeah. it wasn't it wasn't his best and it was him you know quite frankly bitching and moaning about being successful uh, about being successful oh that's too bad yes <laughs> <laughs> um but this is a, this is a very early career interview around 1980 and we just wanted to get to know him a little bit in this interview so have a listen okay you're not a big city kid you're like from a small town in indiana yeah i live in a town called Bloomington, Indiana. I'm from a town that, uh, called Seymour. Seymour, has yeah. 14,000 people in it, and, uh, you know, the old joke, it's not the end of the world, but you can see it from there, you know. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's, I lived there the first 18 years of my life, then I went to college in a town that had 10,000 people in the town, then I moved back to Seymour. Uh, Seymour, isn't that a college town anyway, or is... No, Bloomington is the college Bloomington. town. Indiana yeah. University's there, and that's where I live now. I live about six miles out of town. On a, on a, got a little house in the woods, you know. You're still living there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I I have nothing, uh, I didn't lose anything in New York or Los Angeles or Paris or London, you know. I I go there to work, you know, because that's where a lot of the work is. Mm-hmm. But, you know, for me, I'm, I would much rather go back to, to Bloomington and see friends who don't, you know, aren't involved in the pretentiousness of rock and roll. There was a song that a lot of people um, became familiar with due to Pat Benatar, which is, of course, I Need a Lover. Right. How did she come to do that song? Well, I I wrote that song in 1977, and in between in between record deals, and I was playing at the Whiskey A Go Go in Los Angeles, and uh, a guy named Mike Chapman came up to me and he said, uh, "I was backstage." He says, "I'll give you X thousands of dollars for the song." I said, "I'm not interested in selling my songs to anybody." What do you mean by selling your song? He uh, he wanted to give me money. You know, I would still be the writer. Oh, I see. But I would get, like, no, very little royalties, da-da-da. He just wanted to give me a big lump sum. You know, the funniest story I ever heard uh, lately about somebody selling it was Willie Nelson selling one of his songs. It's it's a classic, you know. Now he sold it for uh, $175 so I could buy a new car, you know. So I, I knew that I would, that, that selling, selling songs is a bad idea, you know, because one day you're singing them in a club for uh, 200 people, the next day it's uh, selling 6 million copies. So I wasn't interested. He wanted to buy the song for Susie Quattro. And him and Susie came back saying, he said, we love this song. Can we buy it from you? I said, no. And uh, so I went to, I, I moved to London for, uh, I went to London to make an album, but I ended up living there because I, the work just kept going and mm-hmm. kept going and kept going. And I lived there for about 9, 10, 11 months. And while I was there, I made an album that only came out in England, uh, Europe, and Australia. It didn't come out in Canada or United States. Which one was that? Now? That's an album called A Biography that had the original I Need a Lover on it. And uh, it was pretty successful in Europe and Australia. It was real successful in Australia. And um, once you record a song, it's public domain, right? Mm-hmm. So last year I went in and I did the... They wanted to put a biography out here, but I said, I don't want, I don't want that record to come out in the United States. I want to make another record. Because it had been a year, and mm-hmm. I was ready to make another record. And uh, so I just made the John Cougar album. And I was playing at the bottom line in New York, and... Uh, this girl comes backstage and she says, my name's Pat Benatar. I don't know who Pat Benatar is. You know, this was before her album came out last year. And she says, I recorded one of your songs. 
I said, oh, great. I said, who, who produced it? She goes, Nikki Chin, Mike Chapman. I goes, ah, figures. Oh, okay. Okay, Christopher, <laughs> I have a question to ask you. He yeah. says that once a song is recorded, it goes into the public domain. Is that right? No, I, I think that's just a terminology Oh, problem. I see. Yeah, well, what he means is that once it's been recorded, anybody else can record it. Oh, I see. Okay. But... If they want to make any changes in the song, they have to get permission. Yes. But they can record it, yeah. as long as they pay all the appropriate royalties. Right. But public domain, that's when a song, uh, you don't have to pay any royalties to, to record right. it. That's right, yes. But and that's like, I think it's 75 years yeah. after the death of the composer. Yeah. So, you know, Oh Susanna is in public domain. What? Yeah. But, so we can record that. But Happy Birthday is not. Let's just, <laughs> let's just make that clear. That's true. <laughs> wow. Okay, well, that's, that's interesting. And, uh, you know, you, of course, know all about uh, songwriting because, you know, that's your main career. Is that correct? I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, let me put it this way. That's your main source of income. Yes. That's great. That's great. And you know, and a thing that I love doing, I must say. So, do you know the song that he's talking about, I Need a Lover? Yeah. Yeah. That's, and, and the Pat Benatar version, I don't know the, when the last time you heard the John Cougar version of it, but it goes on way too long and it doesn't, it's not quite the same melody. She actually messes with the melody a little bit and makes it better. It's a better pop song the way Pat Benatar does it than, than John Cougar, but he, but he, of course, is fantastic in it. And um, in the 80s, I would say that uh, John Cougar was my second favorite concert that I'd been to. I saw Springsteen in mm-hmm. 84, 85 on the Born in the USA. Right. And um, and then 87 with uh, Mellencamp at the uh, the Lonesome Jubilee Tour. I could not believe how good that was. At the was. Gardens? At the Gardens. Yeah, That's I was right. there. That's right. Oh, were you? Yeah. Yeah, and all the, once they bring out all the fiddles and it's become so earthy so organic like it's so the music felt so real mm-hmm. you know it was a it was a nice touch and it, it was, was a great, great show i yeah. do remember we also asked john about another one of his early hits ain't even done with the night sounds um like a very vulnerable male you know you... that song is uh is my uh, shot at take at uh, trying to do r&b you know uh that it's got kind of a motown uh, rhythm section i i like to make believe it does anyway you know so uh yeah, I guess. I mean, I'm not vulnerable, you know me. I'm a big, tough, macho guy, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what kind of stuff do you do in a live club atmosphere? What, uh, what's your show all about? Well, I just basically try to remember the words most of the time. But Seriously, I don't know. I used to really take my live performances seriously, but I don't anymore. Because I've learned after playing, you know, when I first made my first album, I'd only been on stage ten times. So for the last few years, it was like, uh-oh, serious business, we're on stage. Anymore, I've realized that people don't really come to see me. And they don't come to see anybody, actually. They come, they, they go to a club, to a concert, for a couple, three different reasons. To get drunk, to get stoned, and to get in the back seat of a car with somebody. Don't kid yourself. Lots of people come to see you. Well, I wish I could believe that, you know, but I have a hard time believing that. I think, I think that they come in the name of rock and roll, not so much to see me. You know, uh, I like to think that, but I mean, I, the real thing is with me, I, cannot, I just cannot handle all these people in the rock and roll business. I've got thousands of people coming to see me. <laughs> sure, right, you're so important, you know. Yeah, but you don't have to think of it that way. Um, I realize what you're saying. You'd feel uncomfortable. You'd owe something to the people. Is that what you're afraid of? No, no, no. I owe the people. If they pay a dollar and a half, I owe, I owe the same show that the people who paid uh, $10. You know what I'm saying? I, I, owe the, I owe to go out and do my best job. Not so much to them, but to myself. If I go out and do a crummy job, I feel bad when I, get, when I come off stage. 
you know. I feel bad about it. But, you know, let me put it to you like this. Let's say you're at the concert tonight, right? This real cute blonde comes up to you and says, let's hit it. You're going to say, adios, John Cougar. See you later. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> there you go. There's a whole bunch of things. In there's that a clip. moment of truth in that, for and, sure. And there's a whole uh, bunch of things. A dollar and a half to see a concert? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But that shows you what what era we're talking about. And the backseat of a car. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank so, you, John. Well, yeah. And, you know, John has so much attitude. And he's being, this is at the beginning, so he's being pretty friendly here. Mm-hmm. There are times when he could be pretty contrary, I think. Did you ever get a chance to interview? John? No, he never came to much that I can recall. I did meet him backstage, actually, at that concert at the Gardens, because I think we were involved with a contest, and Mm -hmm. we brought some winners back to meet him, and he was very subdued. He was nice to them, but very subdued. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Which, you know, I I understand. I mean, he's about to do a big show in a Mm -hmm. big arena, Mm -hmm. and there's, you know, every night there's a lot at stake for an artist. Yeah. I really do think he was really uncomfortable being a star. He just wanted to play music. Mm. Anyway... Real, real great artist, John Cougar from about 1980. Christopher, boy, a few months ago, I remember you coming back, telling me all about a great party you went to around the Christmas holidays. It was amazing. Over the holidays, I went to Stevie Wonder's House of Toys show. Now, oh. this was the 21st annual show that he had done. And this one was at the Staples Center in Los Angeles. Now, this year's was special because Stevie was playing two of his greatest albums, Talking Book and Inner Visions, in their entirety. Oh, wow. And the show, as usual, featured a cast of stars, uh, including this year, uh, Dave Matthews, hmm. Tony Bennett, Pharrell, Andra Day, and the rapper Common. And... It was absolutely magical. I mean, you think about it, between 72, with the release of Music of My Mind, and and through the album's talking book, Intervisions, Fulfilling This First Finale, and 1976's Songs of the Key of Life, Stevie Wonder had arguably one of the greatest creative outpourings of any popular music artist ever. I don't think people realize how fertile one one artist could ever be. Elton John put out a lot of albums, a lot of great albums in a short period of time, and it was around that time as well. But boy, oh boy, Stevie hit it out of the park, like you say, with about five albums in about five years. And I think he was even releasing, sometimes they were releasing them every six months at times, right? Like it was... It was crazy. It was crazy. The creativity and the and the prolific nature of his creativity was really something to behold. I have an example of that. I worked with a guitar player that worked with Stevie at one point, and of course I was curious to know about what mm. the process was like. And he said that in the middle of the session, recording, Stevie would just say, okay, hold on. And he would go over to a two-track machine that they were, you know, they set up separately. And he would literally play something in that he was composing in the moment while he was working on something else. A completely different song. Mm Mm-hmm. Wow. You know. And he didn't want to lose it. Yeah. I think, okay, okay. We didn't record into our phones in those days. (laughs) (laughs) That is unbelievable. There's so much, you know. Uh, Prince was like that. He was prolific in that in that regard, um, where he he wanted to put out so much music, and that came to the detriment, I think, of uh, his relationship with the record company. But that's a completely different story. But he was one of those artists as well. Wow, that's great. Stevie's the best. You know, he talked about writing an autobiography, but he hasn't done it yet. But I think, in a way. It's kind of like he's writing his autobiography in every song that he writes. I mean, think of songs like I Wish. Well, I hope to, in the coming years, do a book about myself. There have been people that have um, set out to write, like, different things about Stevie Wonder in book form. But I, I believe that the book that I will write, which will take a great deal of the future of my life, you know, will kind of speak of things that 
that many people um, don't know about. But my music actually speaks and is closest to me than, than anything that I could ever do. If you listen to the songs that I've written or the songs of others that I will record, you will hear how I feel. I guess it's the deepest me. It's, sometimes I feel that the people that listen to my music or the fans that I have are closer to me than some of the people are my close acquaintances or friends. So one of the most amazing moments in that holiday show that I saw a few months ago was a duet with Tony Bennett on For Once in My Life. Tony, at 91, sounds incredible. And like Stevie, he just projects such joy in his work. Uh, It was an absolutely moving moment, and beautiful musically as well. Stevie, in this clip coming up, reveals his respect for the artists that came before him. There have been many people that have influenced my music. Music... um, as one of the songs on the album say, there goes promoting that album again. No, but I, I have to say this to kind of express what I mean. Um, music is a world within itself with language we all understand, with an equal opportunity for all to sing, dance, and clap their hands. So it doesn't belong to any one person or one people. Music is a gift of, of, of life. It's a toy that, that, um, that our supreme being gave us to express our joys and our sorrows, and to even in moments of sorrow, give us the peace, the ability to be strong enough with the joy that it sometimes brings. So there are many songs that I, I really love, um, the songs of Donna Washington, Bill mm-hmm. Benton, uh, Ray Charles. I feel that there will never ever be uh, an award great enough to give him, meaning Ray Charles, and that he's opened so the door so many hearts, and it's, it's a, has made the, the bridge possible and the gap that was between many different kinds of music. And um, I just hope that he receives that, you know, whatever we can give him. Now, we just want to clarify, this isn't an interview that you did when you saw him around the holidays. No. <laughs> this is an interview that we did probably about 40 years ago, maybe longer. So you're weaving what you saw just a few months ago with what we heard several decades ago, which is fantastic to hear. Thank you for clarifying, (laughs) Tom. (laughs) I I think our audience must be going, wow, Stevie sounds different there and a little muddy. We do apologize a little bit for the sound quality, but we do believe that the the quality of what they're saying transcends the sound quality of what you're hearing. One one more thing from the show. There had been some tabloid rumors around that time that Stevie was actually able to see. Yes, I saw that on the front page of the Inquirer. I was going crazy. What are you doing reading the Inquirer? I wasn't reading. Okay. I was browsing. You were standing in line. I was standing in line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he had some fun with that. He said, well, he said, if anybody out there believes that, give me the keys to your car because I'm going for a drive. <laughs> <laughs> He's a very playful performer. Yes. He, he really is. Okay, so, you know, based on what you just said, this is Stevie talking about being blind. It's a reality. And when you face the truth, totally, your soul is then free of anything else. Being blind is not a handicap, really. There are many things that you cannot do, but there are many things that you can do. And it's all in, this, in, your, in your state of mind and how determined you are to do as much as you possibly can. We have um, certain pictures, I believe, that we uh, are able to draw or have been drawn. I know for me, in my mind, as me perceiving something as probably how a, a, a person... For instance, when you say um, blue, there's a kind of feeling that I do get. Blue, in my mind, is uh, a very fresh color 
red as being a very exciting color. In black, there is a great deal of mystery. Uh, when, I, when I think of grief, when green, I, I, think, I think of um, a very flat surface. When I think of pink, I think of uh, something, uh, a relatively humorous color. Now, I don't know if that is what it's about, but that's what I get. Okay, so that's Stevie Wonder, early to mid-70s. Wow, great stuff, great stuff. You know, um, I I've now have told some other stories about uh, being in restaurants in L.A., and I have one small one for you today. Okay. Um, okay, I was in a place called Kate Madalini in West Hollywood, and it was a late-night place because L.A., believe it or not, kind of rolls up pretty early. Oh, okay. Um, but this place was a classic place to go. Food was great. And I was there one time, and I went to the restroom, and I go in the restroom, and in front of the cubicles, there's this very good-looking guy in a beautiful suit standing there with his arms crossed. And inside the cubicle, there's somebody singing, but not a real song, just kind of scatting. Yes. And, you know. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> hey, that guy can really sing. Right? <laughs> and the guy standing up front smiles at me. Anyway, so I cut to me washing my hands, and over my shoulder in the mirror... The door to the cubicle pops out, and in full voice comes Stevie Wonder, <laughs> <laughs> and he's wearing a floor-length orange caftan, right? And the biggest smile you've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> this is famous lost words. I'm Tom Jokic, and I'm Christopher Ward. Time now for when rock stars attack. This <laughs> time, <laughs> this time it's more like when rock stars are attacked. You know, we could probably do a couple of hours of artists talking about rock critics and some of the harsh things that those critics have said about those artists. And that brings us to Carly Simon. We've got some great interview stuff with Carly from different points in her career, and I promise we'll play them in the coming weeks. Uh, but there's one clip I want to play for you right now where Carly is talking about the famous rock critic Robert Christgau, who took a pretty serious swipe at Carly over what became probably her biggest and best-known song. Have a listen to this. Well, one time, Robert Christgau wrote a review of the No Secrets album, and it said that on You're So Vain, Carly Simon sounds like a horse whinnying. Whoa! And, I, and it just, I mean, that was one of a number of, of just, you know, comments that just stabbed me. You walked into the party like you were I read it and I wrote him a letter, which was the only letter that I've written to a to a music critic who's written who's written a review of, about me. And I just said, I wonder if you know that that people that you say these things about are really human and take these yes. things to heart, and and that they're not just sort of you know performers who are above it all and and ride ride around in limousines and don't care care about anything except for their next dollar. You know, people have hearts and. And, and he wrote me a letter back saying that since that time he'd listened to the album some more and in fact he'd grown to like it. It was a very open letter, it was a very warm letter and, and it was as if by my opening myself to him, by making the contact to, with him and making the admission that I was actually hurt, that he'd sort of gotten in what he wanted to get in, which was the little stab and now we could be friends, you know. And, but, and, and also in the letter he also said something about about uh, James and myself coming from well-to-do families, and that there was that there was something about the fact that we had come from rich parents that turned him off, and that made him believe that we that we couldn't have souls. 
with that there couldn't be any soul in our songs. Oh wow, mm. wow! Those are really those are really serious shots at someone. I mean. It is his right as a critic to yes. say what he believes, yes. I mean, and that's what his readers expect of him. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, there are no guidelines for decency when you're critiquing things. We, we, I mean, and now we're in the age of the internet troll where mm-hmm. anybody, you know, hiding behind a keyboard feels like they can say anything yes, in a public exactly. sphere. I do feel like sometimes writers think of clever things to say and then shape their criticism around that clever turn of phrase or that really great shot that they think they can take. I think that transcends the importance of the honesty of their work for the hope of being clever instead. You know, Robert thought he was probably being very funny when he described Carly's voice in that way. But it's also interesting how, you know, she had the nerve and the patience to write him a nice letter. He wrote back. They kind of patched things up, but that's still pretty hurtful stuff. But yes, he's got the right to say it. I, I love that she wrote to him. Yeah. That takes guts. Yes. Which she has in space. Yes, she, yes, she sure does. And we, I promise we will play more from Carly Simon cool. in the coming weeks. Now I want to play a clip from Cher. And, you know, if there's one or two people that I would like to sit down and just shoot the breeze with over dinner, a very, very <laughs> long dinner. One of them would be Cher. And I'm not a huge Cher fan, you know, with you know, with her music, but, but she's been there. Yeah. And, and and you'll find out in a few minutes how deeply she's embedded in that early 60s music. So, cool. so I haven't heard this. No, you have not. I want to follow up on the idea of withering criticism like the way Robert Crisco uh, took down Carly Simon. So imagine being taken down by one of the greatest producers of all time. And we're talking about Phil Spector, okay? Mm. And of course... You know, there's a lot to be said about Phil Spector, especially as time went on and people who suffered and in one case suffered with her life at the hands of Phil Spector. But we're talking now about his heyday in the early 60s. And Sonny Bono is there with his wife, Cher. And Cher has no career to speak of at this point. Right. And if Phil Spector has anything to say about it, she never would have a career. (laughs) So have a listen to this. Now, just a note here. Cher calls Phil Spector Philip. Sonny was always bugging Philip, you know, record, share, record, share. And Philip wasn't too hot on the idea because he had, you know, the Ronettes and the Crystals and Bobby Sox and all those people, you know, and he was making really terrific records. And uh, so one time he came to the house, he said, I've got a song I'm going to record you. It's called Ringo, I Love You. He said, now we'll call you Bonnie Joe Mason. And it'll be really terrific. So we made the record. And all the jocks said, we're not playing that because this chick sounds like a guy and Ringo, I Love You sounds, you know, sounds very... Strange, you know, and and so it never got played. And Philip said, "Look, don't bother with her because she's never going to be anything." Oh, Ooh. oh! Imagine that. Ouch! Imagine that. And imagine how you'd feel, right? This is a legend we're talking about. This is a guy who's creating hit after hit after hit, and is you know for his vaunted wall of sound. And he's saying to you, "You're never going to amount to anything." I mean, the one consolation would be she probably recognized that he was absolutely insane. Yes, probably. Yeah. Okay, so let's keep going with Cher and some really great interview moments. Have a listen to how Phil Spector came around on Cher. And of course, the Darlene she talks about here is Darlene Love. Philip had a very interesting idea about background. He called Sonny and I his funk, and we had a very strange sound, which he, when he first started, I, I remember I, I used to go, because Sonny would, like, would play maracas or jawbone or something like that at all the dates, and I would just go and hang out. Philip was not so crazy about me at the time. And uh, one time, Darlene didn't show up for a session. 
And Philip looked at me and he said, can you sing? And I said, well, you know, I started to give him an explanation. He said, I don't want to hear that. He said, can you carry a tune? I said, yeah. He said, well, get out there. He said, we won't hear you. He said, but I just need someone to fill up the hole. So from that time on, he never did a record that, that I didn't do. I, the first record I ever did was Be My Baby, and the last record I ever did for him was uh, Love and Feeling by the Righteous Brothers. That's crazy. So she's been on, like, dozens and dozens of songs that we didn't even know about. Like, I know I know that, you know, some people know that part of her history, but I didn't know no, that part of neither. her history. No, me neither. I didn't realize that yeah. she, was, she worked as a backup singer, yes. in essence. Yeah. yeah, for sure. It was kind of like the Glenn Campbell story. Glenn Campbell appeared on hundreds of songs that we all heard, mm-hmm. but we didn't know he was Glenn Campbell at the time because he wasn't at that point yeah yeah <laughs> well so, darlene love who yeah. she's referring to i guess was dropped into all kinds of sessions and in fact became the de facto lead singer for bobby Sox and the blue jeans or the crystals or whoever mm. he was cutting at that mm-hmm. time wow that's great so how did Cher finally end up performing on stage with sunny the first time i ever went on stage he literally pushed me on the stage we went to do a freebie thing for gene weed and it was at a roller skating rink, and I was scared. I mean, I was so scared I couldn't even talk. I was standing backstage shaking and sweating. That's all I could. And I kept saying, Sonny, I'm not going. You just call it off. I'm not going to do it. And I was. he said, well, why don't you look at the band and look at the audience and tell me what you think? And as I went to do that, he pushed me on the stage, and I was there. And he was there with me. And I told him, I said, I couldn't possibly go on without you. If you don't come with me, I'm not going. And that was it. And I... I I don't even remember what happened. I mean, it was like, you know, my life flashed before me and I was scared to death. (laughs) That's great. How touching. I know. And then she became such a kind of a compelling performer, someone Mm -hmm. who seemed to live for the stage. But I find this really interesting. You remember the whole Sonny and Cher shtick on their TV show with Cher always putting Sonny down. So this next clip is kind of eye-opening as Cher describes what life with Sonny was really like. Ah. Sonny was the whole thing, you know, he guided the whole number, and then he was very harsh, kind of, in a way, you know, like, where are you and what are you doing and, and all that. And and after a while, I felt, you know, I was grown up and I really wasn't doing anything, but I would like to go, you know, shopping or something like that, and he just wasn't into that. He really, like... People thought I was really brazen on the TV show, you know, and putting him down, all that. That was something that was an act, you know. I mean, it was fun and we would have it, but it was nothing that was ever carried home because he's very Victorian as a man, you know. When the woman gets home, she all of a sudden becomes the wife, and the wife is definitely behind the husband. Boy, oh boy. (laughs) So there you go. So this is um, Cher, probably early 70s, when she's starting to get all of her hits, Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves, Dark Lady, all those songs. Kind bang, of, bang, my yeah. baby shot me down. <laughs> yes, yes, perfect. Mm. Anyway, so, so there you go, Cher, from probably about 45 years ago. Wow. Okay. Great clip. Time now for the beginning of the end. What I mean is that we are beginning something new that will be at the end of every episode, and it's called The Wisdom of Dave. And the Dave in question <laughs> is, of course... David Lee Roth. Diamond Dave! I've got a lengthy interview that is pure Dave, and after clip after clip, I'm laughing, I'm laughing. But after a few minutes, I'm going, oh, Dave, like, this is too much. Just shut up. Like, it's just way too much. It's hilarious, bizarre, profound, profane, just silly. But the problem is, I couldn't play it all for you. You would just turn the radio off or turn your podcast off, and this would be over. So for your own safety, we've decided to split up all the Dave moments into bite-sized morsels, one per week, because that's all your da- your weekly allowance will allow. That's all your system will allow. And so this is the best way to digest this whole thing. We now present one brief shining example of 
the wisdom of Dave as he tells us about the meaning of the cover of Van Halen's 1984 album. Well, the cover symbolizes Van Halen as the little angel boy with a Paul Mall in his right hand, you know. And uh, I, I can tell you what 1984 means to me, myself, personally. And that is at exactly a quarter to midnight, I'm going to undo the button on my designer jeans with the Italian surname, and I'm going to loosen the string on my French sunglasses, you know, that you use for skiing, and I'm going to plug my all-new waterproof Walkman headphones into my compact disc player, and I'm going to tune in the stereo hookup for the cable channel that shows rock video, and at the stroke of 12, I'm going to aerobicize. <laughs> oh, there you go. I need a shower. I know. I know. Imagine hearing. Uh, seriously, I've got 20 clips like that. Thank you, Tom. That's the very first edition of The Wisdom of Dave. So that's Famous Lost Words for this week. That's Christopher Ward. I'm Tom Jogic. Adam Karsh is our producer. Don't forget to hear previous episodes of Famous Lost Words on the iHeartRadio app. <laughs>